right, welcome back into Talking Distance. Uh, this is a podcast we created uh, in hopes to share and spread our passion of all things Indiana distance running. I am one of your two hosts. I'm Jared Turner. I'm a cross country and track coach at Yorktown High School. Uh, and our other host is uh, Rick Sluter, head coach at Columbus North. How's it going, coach? Oh, great. Got a little raspy voice from a dual meet last night down in Jeffersonville. So we'll make it work today. This is the second time. I'm going to pull the curtain back. This is the second time we've had some voice issues. Yeah, some, uh, some kids are worried about shin splints. Mine are my vocal cords. <laughs> yeah. You've been yelling at the Columbus North Bulldogs too much. Gosh, they don't need you on their case so much. <laughs> well, then they got to – we'll get back to cross country where I only see them once a mile instead of every four years. <laughs> That's so true. So true. All right. Well, hey, uh, delighted today because uh, we're joined by a guest – um, I've described him a lot of different ways, but mostly as the most overqualified uh, assistant cross-country coach in the state because he's uh, assistant cross-country coach for, for the Yorktown Tigers. So awesome to have him here, but it's uh, Dr. Matt Harbour. Uh, he works at Ball State, and uh, Coach Harbour, welcome in. Hey, good to be here, guys. So if you could maybe just start off, uh, kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I, know, I know you got some running in your background, but uh, we kind of called you here because of what you're doing now at Ball State University. So if you just want to kind of tell us, uh, you know, your journey as to uh, how you got here to the director of the exercise physiology at, at Ball State. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as you said, I'm currently a professor at Ball State in the what we call the clinical exercise physiology program. Uh, located within the Human Performance Lab, which is probably uh, the most most well-known exercise physiology lab in the country, which is why I came to Ball State 20-something years ago uh, to be a part of that legacy. Uh, I'm originally from Tennessee, so I cut my roots in high school track and field down in Tennessee and uh, did uh, all my college, or I guess my undergraduate college at University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, where I ran under Bill Gautier, who has some ties back to IU because he was an assistant coach under Sam Bell. And then after college, I uh, guess I wasn't ready to get a job. So I just stayed in school as long as I could. And I was really interested in the physiology of performance. I had an often injured running career once I got into college. And so I was interested in athletic training and physical therapy, so I started going down that road to understand running injuries, and uh, through that process kind of came across the physiology and the science of it, and that really piqued my interest, and so I decided to go learn more about that, uh, and like we mentioned before, uh, Ball State has historically, from the 1960s up through the 2000s, was about the only place doing running physiology uh, so I came here to study for my PhD right after uh, Dr. Costa retired, uh, but we were able to do some stuff with the Ball State cross country team back when they had a men's program in the early 2000s, and you know that was 20 something years ago. I've progressed into my job now. Uh, I still love exercise physiology. Uh, now we apply that mostly to patient populations or maybe the health sides of it. What what are what are the health benefits of exercise? But I still keep it, uh, tabs on the running physiology as much as I can. There's a lot of great stuff out there. Uh, and obviously the classics are always the classics. So hopefully we'll talk about a lot of that today. And I mean, that's one of the things I think a lot of probably our listeners and probably a lot of people in general just don't know is, is how deep of roots Ball State has in this field. I mean, it's something that kind of goes unknown, but they really were trailblazers and uh, the history is rich and the history is deep. So 
Yeah, so uh, our listeners, our audience are probably mostly high school cross country and and track runners and high school cross country and track coaches. So we wanted to throw some topics at you today that are just kind of some some maybe hot topics in in our world of coaching. And uh, the first one, I mean, we could probably spend the entire time just on this topic alone, but this idea of of lactate, lactic acid. I mean, we're in track season right now. You know, uh, at some point on every high school track around this state. Uh, somebody will be yelling about fighting the lactic acid in the last 100 of a 400 meter dash that's going on. And uh, we just kind of wanted to understand, I, I guess uh, we'd call this portion kind of lactic acid for dummies or lactate for dummies. So here, I'll just share share one of my experiences, right? So uh, we had a meet last night and, uh, you know, some newbies in the 400 and and as they come around 250 more, boy, they look good. I feel like I got my my 400 runner for the foreseeable future. And then the Mack truck just takes them out uh, coming around that 300 uh, down the home stretch. So, I mean, what am I seeing there? I mean, is this something that we can use some training to buffer against? Is it something that uh, some kids just maybe genetically are better at dealing with than others? Uh, just maybe kind of walk us through that topic and we'll pepper you with some questions along the way, maybe. Yeah, so I don't know if you if you intended to be clever there when you mentioned the buffer, uh, because uh, yeah, exactly. And and lactate, lactic acid, you know, we joke a lot because a lot of people use the terms and they probably don't always use them correctly. But to be fair, in general, you know, the premise is correct that uh, that when we exercise at a high level. So what you gave is the perfect example. So you get two, two to 300 meters into a 400 meter sprint and you start feeling things that you've never felt before. <laughs> um, and that is, is due to acid accumulation uh, in the body. And uh, if you remember from your high school chemistry days, an acid is something that donates a hydrogen ion. And so in hydrogen ions, when they, when they build up, they change the pH. And the, the pH changes is what you're feeling, uh, the, the sensation, because when we exercise, especially when we do extreme things like sprinting for 400 meters, uh, our body is processing all of those signals and it's feeding back. Uh, so in that case, you, your body is processing what it would consider danger signals. Uh, it's kind of similar to towards the end of a marathon when you feel like your legs are dead or heavy. Right. That is your body sending signals to your brain, trying to communicate that there's, you know, some, something's wrong here. Now, those are different things. I guess maybe I shouldn't have brought that up, but those are two different things. Uh, but yeah, so there's pH changes, there's chemical changes inside the muscle, and uh, those have direct impact on how the muscles work. Uh, enzymes have pHs. They like to be in their comfort zone. Like they like to have a nice optimal environment. And when you change that environment, they don't work as well. And so one of the things that happens with the pH changes, the enzymes don't work as well. And then things start to kind of go, go haywire, if you will. Uh, so the second half of your question was, um, or part of your question there was buffering it. That's, it is an acid. So buffer is exactly what you need. And we have, we have our innate buffering system, bicarbonate. I don't know how well known that is. You have it in your refrigerator, probably at home, sodium bicarbonate. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same thing. Uh, our body has a bicarbonate uh, system that tries to buffer the acid. And if you're not 
very trained or early in the season, um, that, that bicarbonate buffering system isn't as well developed. And so as you go through the season, hopefully you train correctly, you get some more races under your belt, your body will start to make adjustments to help buffer the acid. And so basically what that's doing is just delaying fatigue. It's just delaying the inevitable. So maybe it happens at 250 meters next time, but hopefully at the end of the year, it's happening closer to three or 350 and you can kind of get through to the finish line. Yeah. Uh, coach, let me, let me ask you a quick question. Um, so I think along those lines, we start talking about, then we bring in the word like threshold. And then I think a lot of coaches and then some athletes are going to be familiar with like Jack Daniels with his book on training, that kind of stuff. Could you go down maybe um, the road of what are some loosely translated? We're not going to give training advice necessarily, but loosely translated. What are some ways that maybe a distance runner can can tackle that most effectively? Yeah, so they're they're kind of distinct things, you know, so so the. The concept of sprinting a 400 or maybe even the later later stages of a 800 the the acid the acidosis that's happening there it's going to be a little different than a distance runner would use for a lactate threshold right and so so that's a kind of a completely different story and so that's where we get into lactate gets kind of a funny thing because lactate in the distance runners world tends to have a negative connotation like, oh, I have too much lactate or I'm accumulating lactate. And uh, that's actually, that's a misnomer because lactate itself is a fuel source. And the problem in those cases is that the athlete hasn't trained appropriately to optimally use lactate. And so they have a lot of lactate building up because they haven't trained their body properly to use it. And so that's where lactate thresholds or prolonged efforts come into play is you're exposing the body, primarily the muscle, to this environment where we're starting to build up some of these metabolites like lactate and uh, hopefully encouraging the body to, to, in response to that, to adapt in ways to optimally use that. And so that when they're exposed to it in a race scenario, a prolonged race, that they're more efficient at using it as a fuel source. And so now it's just an extra fuel that helps them perform instead of a, a, a substance that's just there. It's not helping anybody, I guess. Yeah. So to be very general and like coach Sluter said, we're not giving out specific training advice at all, but uh, what is going to help that process? I mean, is it just uh -huh. simply running, running more consistently, you know, running like we've talked on a previous podcast every day, or is it, the, the specifics of like threshold training or threshold workouts. I mean, is it as simple as we train our body to deal with that lactate by running more often and more consistently? Is it that simple? This is where just running a lot of miles, mm -hmm. you know, running a lot of miles comes into play because it helps to build the infrastructure in the muscle, the capillaries, the mitochondria, that when you are exposed to, you know, periods of intense exercise, so you're building up lots of lactate, it has the ability to either use it or to distribute it throughout the body so that it's not causing uh, a problem. And so that's, that's why there's, you know, good training plans have, you know, base work, you have aerobic work, you have threshold work, you have all those different forms because they all hopefully lead to adaptations that, you know, synergistically when the time is right, they'll all play together and you'll have, you'll have a great outcome. So you're telling me there's not a magic workout our coaches can give to us to magically make our lactate work better just one day. 
Well, maybe Coach Sluter does, but, but <laughs> <laughs> at Yorktown, I haven't seen it. Uh. Well, so, so Coach, or Matt, you brought up a, a, something that hits me because uh-huh. I could get the feeling when I talk to athletes and some coaches that uh, lactate, lactic acid, it's only being produced when you're going the hardest. So, and it, and it tends to hang around for like days and weeks. Um, so in other words, let me give you a little sentence here. Maybe a kid comes up and says, you know, after my race on Monday and it's Wednesday and I still have lactic acid all in my legs. So I think there's this thought that it's only produced when you're sprinting, when you're going hard, the very end of a race. And then it somehow hangs around, you know, we joked earlier in pockets. Um, and it, can you kind of maybe just sort of, like we said, you know, this idea for dummies, just how does this, cause you bring it back to, to biology class or chemistry class. We remember that from class, but we're not applying it to our bodies. Yeah, right. So good question. You're right. That That's where a lot of the kind of confusion comes into play. So number one, you do make lactic acid when you're exercising, actually at rest. You're, we're making lactic acid right now. If we went to the lab and we drew some blood, we would all have lactate in our blood and we're just sitting here. And, and one nerd area of distinction I'll throw out is lactic acid, when it's produced inside your body, it immediately turns to lactate. So there basically is never lactic acid in your body. So that's one of the kind of confusion points where purists will say it's not lactic acid. It, you know, lactic acid is unstable, hence it donates the hydrogen ion, that's what causes the problems, but then you have lactate. And we measure lactate because it's easy to measure. So it's one of those things that over a hundred years ago, they would take out animal muscles and extra, and make them work really hard. And then they found this thing called lactate. And so from there, lactate, that's where lactate got a bad association with fatigue. But back to your question, yes, we're always making lactate. Every time you move, you're producing lactate. So the limitation here is, can you use the lactate? And hopefully you can use the lactate for for good, to for energy, to help you exercise. And if you can't, that's when it starts to build up. Uh, and it's kind of just a surrogate marker. It's not the lactate causing a problem. It's just when you're having problems, there tends to be lactate there, if that makes sense. Uh, now, this whole notion of you know, lactic acid in the legs and all that, yeah, I mean, that we're talking minutes to, to hours, maybe. If, if you do a reasonable cool down after a, a track meet, for instance, like all that metabolic stuff is gone. Uh, what, what the athlete is feeling is probably some residual muscle damage. Right, then that's what they're feeling, especially if it's going to be a couple of days later. Uh, but that has nothing to do with lactic acid or any of that type of stuff. It happens to do with running really hard uh, and kind of damaging the muscle. So can I ask you for a quick comparison? This is one way that I kind of explain it to my kids, my athletes. It's kind of like going to the weight room. You wouldn't say that because I did bench press for the first time that I still have lactate all of my my muscles. You would say I I got micro tear, whatever right? And they're repairing. Mm-hmm. So is, is that a fair analogy that the same thing was in the quads or the calves or? Exact same thing. Okay. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. It, it, the, the, yeah. Any soreness that just comes from you overloaded the muscle. It's a, it's a mechanical disruption. You, you tore the muscle or micro tears by a better analogy. Yeah. So yeah, your analogy is absolutely right. 
Yeah. So you're also telling me that a cool down is important, coach. Uh, <laughs> high school athletes or anybody listening to this, take note. Cool down is important. Uh, don't just skip over it or uh, shorten it. Do what your coach tells you to do. So, yeah, I, I guess moving on to our next topic here. Uh, I know in your lab at Ball State, you know, you guys do a lot of VO2 max testing and VO2 max is definitely something that's thrown around in the, in the distance running world as a as a pretty big limiting factor. And I think it's once again, kind of some mystery behind it. You know, can we increase our VO2 max? You know, my Garmin watch says that I can every time that I go out and run, <laughs> it seems to tell me that I've set a new VO2 max record. So that's awesome. But I know you do a lot of testing with this. So maybe just first off a, a brief explanation of, of what it is. And then once again, maybe bring it back to training. And uh, if it is a limiting factor, uh, how can we improve our VO2 max? Yeah, so good. Yeah, VO2 max, probably my favorite uh, topic uh, that I work with uh, nowadays at my job. And a couple of historical things that you guys didn't ask for. We are, this is 100 years since the, the term VO2 max was used. No kidding. In 1923 by a guy named A.V. Hill. Wow. And interestingly, the same gentleman, A.V. Hill, won a Nobel Prize in the early earlier 1900s for discovering lactate or lactate metabolism. So so same guy. So these topics are all uh, intertwined here. Yeah. Um, so very interesting. But yeah, so VO2 max, as as most runners and athletes know, it it technically refers to the maximum maximum amount of oxygen that your body can use uh, to make energy. And uh, we typically think of that in terms of running or exercise uh, at a high level. And it's probably the most studied variable because again, it's been around for a hundred years. Uh, it's relative, you know, now with all the technology, it's relatively easy to measure. But, and so in that ways, I like to think of it as it's kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's obviously important, mm -hmm. but it's not as important as most people think. Um, mm -hmm. And so just like with the lactate stuff, there's a lot of confusion out there about it. Um, but now I'll let you ask some questions. We can get into some, some specifics of it. So, I mean, is is VO2 max something that we can improve? I mean, is that oh. uh, something through training that we we can do or is that pretty much set? I mean, because I, I think that that uh, idea is out there that, you know, you're just kind of born and your genetics kind of determine how well your body uses oxygen. Is that true or yeah. do we have any control over it? Yeah. So no, good, good question. We do. So in, in our field, uh, and it's, it's pretty true. It's not just kind of a catchphrase. Everything's about half genetic. Your VO2 max is about half genetic, which means it is half changeable. Um, you know, your lifestyle, your environment, the things that you do, you have some control over it. Uh, and also your ability to train your, your VO2 max is genetic. So what you want in an athlete is an athlete with a genetically high VO2 max and then an athlete that is genetically predisposed to respond to training, right? That's what you want, mm -hmm. right? And then if you factor in that they have the mentality to handle training, then now you have an Olympian, right? That's what you have. So yes, VO2 max can change, especially in the general population. Uh, you take a person that doesn't exercise, if they exercise, 10 to 20% improvement easy. Wow. Um, now, if you you take uh, you take your group of athletes, and let's just say you start your summer program in you know June, July, August, you you got a good eight ten weeks uh, heading into the fall. 
uh, if they've done a, a proper program, their VO2 max is probably pegged. It, it's probably not going to change uh, throughout the season. But maybe they go from running a 20-minute 5K to an 18-minute 5K. So something changed. It wasn't their VO2 max, uh, but something changed. But yeah, and then maybe when they take some downtime in the winter, maybe the VO2 max goes down 5 or 10% and you ramp back up in the spring, it's, it may come back. But yeah, your VO2 max is trainable. But if you have an athlete that's working out, training like they should be, then the VO2 max is going to be kind of pegged. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be at the potential. Um, and that's why I say it's important. But the fact that you can have substantial imp- uh, performance improvements over the course of a season with really no change in VO2 max tells you that it is not the end all be all when it comes to determining extra, you know, running performance. So coach, coach, uh, you got to run updates more frequently in your Garmin then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Matt, I, I don't want to throw a curveball at you here because here's one that we haven't talked about. So a term that, that I read and, and that, you know, coaches will use a lot and, and I hear in, uh, maybe from some people in your world, the, the term running economy, oh. the freeze running economy. So it feels like that could be something that maybe relates to that sort of other 50%. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that, and then that is something I think is underappreciated uh, from developing. And maybe the, the good coaches, uh, this is what makes them good coaches is they're getting into some of these nuances, get students or uh, young athletes to understand is running is a skill. Running is a skill, just like throwing a ball. And I use the Steph Steph Curry analogy. I think he he shoots 500 three-pointers a day. He's the best in the world at shooting. Why does he need to shoot 500? Uh, And it's because it's a skill and running is the same way. Uh, And, and when you run and you run a lot, part of, of the purpose there is that your body becomes very good at the skill of running. And what that means is, is it takes the energy and it translates that into actually moving much more efficiently, which basically is running economy. We won't get into efficiency versus economy because we could write textbooks on that. (laughs) That's well beyond us. But if if that's kind of answered your question, um, or I think what you're getting at is becoming, increasing your economy, which again is something that should happen that's where the strength training comes in, plyos, probably all the stuff we're going to talk about. Um, but that just allows you to use that VO2 max much better. And then that that other 50%, maybe just to dive into it just a little bit more. I mean, is there anything, you know, obviously outside of VO2 max, because we're talking about, yeah, it might be pegged if you have a good training system and you enter the season fit, you know, and and then we don't maybe need to get into the mental side because I, I think that's probably underappreciated too and maybe much less well-known because there's so many X factors there. But is there anything else physiology-wise that could be a reason that, yeah, we enter the season, you know, a, a girl running a 20-minute 5K, but then by the end they're running in the 18-minute range? Like, are there any other physiology limitations uh, or things that we can train throughout the season that would – help us get there just from outside of a VO2 max perspective? Uh, well, to be, see, this is tying in everything we've talked about. So once the VO2 max may be pegged there, you can become more efficient at using the oxygen, which is going to help you use lactate. And it's going to help you avoid some of those chemical changes that we talked about. 
And that is what is allowing you to perform better. So we call that fractional utilization, uh, which is if, if you read into literature, they say there's three big things, VO2 max, the, the fractional utilization, and then the running economy is what he's uh, there. So let's just say at the beginning of the season, a kid at the 20 minute 5K, they can only sustain 70% of their VO2 max for 5K. But as they get into the, you know, toward the end of the season, maybe now they can sustain 90%, right? And that, yeah. and that's the difference. Um, you guys will love this. I had just had lunch with my, my son before this. He did not know who Dathan Ritzenheim or Todd Williams was. <laughs> so I, I, I was, I was a little bit depressed there that I failed. How but many Frank Schwarter. How many young people watching this podcast right now are Googling those names? As right. we... <laughs> uh, but Frank Shorter, you guys know Frank Shorter? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. So we call this the Frank Shorter rule. So Frank Shorter's VO2 max is 71, tested here at Ball State uh, awesome. back in the 70s. So 71 is exceptional, an amazing VO2 max. But if we were to take the 100 best runners in the United States, 100 best high school runners in the United States, they would probably all have a VO2 max of at least 71, if, if not better. But Frank Shorter is an Olympic champion. And what was unique about him was he could run at like 90 to 95% of his VO2 max for a marathon. Mm -hmm. you know, whereas the average stud high school athlete can maybe sustain that high percentage for a 5K, right? And so that's where you start getting into the kind of the nuances and so I joke because my VO2 max is, is uh, well higher, was well higher than Frank Shorter's, mm -hmm. but I was never in the Olympics. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> ever paid me money to run. So. <laughs> and if kids don't know about Frank Shorter, I mean, I assume they at least do know about Steve Prefontaine. Just look up some Steve Prefontaine mm -hmm. videos and history and you will come across Frank Shorter. Right. Um, well, and since you brought him up, you probably didn't want to know this, but I was actually looking the same day. That, so Prefontaine's VO2 max was 84 was 84 so that that's pretty high but also see they're they're different athletes right prefontaine was a 5k guy frank shorter was a marathoner well, and they raced 10k they were probably very very competitive i believe there are actually some some instances of that um but they were just built differently they trained differently um both very impressive uh, in their own ways obviously but you know kind of different on the vo2 max scale there if yeah, you, you could kind of see the physiological differences between the two, mm -hmm. right? Like one was a little bit shorter, more muscular. The other was that more traditional, skinny, lanky. Um, right. Which allowed him to be much more economical yep. or efficient would be, and then have a good running economy. All right. So, uh, yeah, next thing on the dog here, this, I mean, this will be a game, but it's not kind of a fast paced game. It's maybe a <laughs> slow burn game, but, uh, so I, I kind of want to give you three options and, uh, here's your three options must do something to and voodoo okay so uh -huh. the uh the must do means like this this is something that yeah we we must be doing this like this is so important that if you're uh, even a high school program you should probably be doing this uh something to means there's something to it uh, it's definitely important uh, but it may not be a cornerstone of of your program or whatever. And then voodoo may be just something that we believe because it's been passed down, maybe an old wives tale and running. I don't know. But um, if it's just kind of voodoo and we don't see a whole lot of objective science backing it up, let us know that. So here, here's your first one. OK, uh, static stretching, man, it, it has been 
blasted by some people. Then I feel like it's made a comeback. And then there's some people that say, well, it's it's according to when you do it. Don't static stretch before you run, but static stretch after you run. Does static stretching have a place somewhere in your program uh, from a physiology side? Just speaking physiology, what do you, what do you think? Yes, absolutely. After you warmed up. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. so, so static stretch, warm muscles. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and to static stretch a cold muscle, I don't necessarily buy into it's bad mm-hmm. per se, but definitely, um, you know, after a warm up, if it's an 800 or a mile or, or if it's post run, even static stretching has its place. And, and, and post run. I mean, that's the thing that I've heard the most, like, you know, once you're done with your events, uh, obviously you've raced, uh, so your muscles are warm, you've cooled down all that. Um, you know, to static stretch at the end of the day, you think there's some benefit to that? Well, I, I again, when, in a, when the body's warm, so I wouldn't wait too far after. And I would just look at it, you know, we, we're, we always we sit, we, we're always in awkward, unnatural positions and static stretching is a way, really what you're doing is you're telling your brain, I want my muscle to be here or it's okay to be here. And so it's actually the brain is kind of learning to let the muscle lengthen a little bit. And then also the caveat behind that, we probably don't stretch for as long a period of time as we need to. I mean, of course, 100%. most high school teams around the state, you'll you'll watch and it's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, clap. OK, now on to the next one. You know, so uh, that's probably not the the duration of time that it needs to be held for. Correct. Coach okay. Lurie, you got one more? Yeah. So, um, Matt, feel free to give us whatever version of this, but, um, my long run for my team for my week should be exactly 20% of my weekly mileage. Yeah. I don't buy into this actually. This is a personal pet peeve of mine. <laughs> uh, it, the so long run is very important. And I think a uh, long run particularly in developing young athletes, I feel like is very important. I don't buy into putting a label on 20 or 25 percent. And we know there are coaches that are absolutely like nail into the tenth of a mile, which I kind of chuckle at. There's just so much that goes into it. If if you've if you've done 10K worth of mile repeats in the week and you have a 30 mile week, right now your percentage is already getting kind of wonky. If you're doing your long run with with threshold built into the middle of it versus long run as just a, a easy pace run. So to me, there's too many nuances to label a percentage of it. And I personally feel the physiology supports that you can have your long run can be a longer percentage of your weekly volume in the context that the total load is not too much. Can you, you know? give me real quick um when you say it's really important for younger kids, younger athletes, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. can you give those listening the, the one or two or three of the big physiological adaptations that, that are brought about by an, a nice, let's just define this one as a nice, steady, easy pace, long run. Yeah. So the main things there are going to actually be out into the muscle. So you're building capillaries, you're building mitochondria, and those are, you're building blood volume. Those are important things for when you do add intensity, the the muscle is ready to, to handle the intensity that's given at it. And it takes, I know kids have short attention spans and running for 60 to 90 minutes is, it doesn't sound like much fun, 
but it's important and needs to be done. Now, this was something that was brought up uh, in an earlier podcast for us that maybe we didn't do, or at least didn't spend too much time on earlier in our coaching careers, but boy, has really become a staple of a lot of programs outside of ours. Uh, how about strides? Uh, you know, just doing strides as part of, I mean, I don't know, you answer this. Is that something we should be doing every day? Is there something to it? Is is it a must do? I mean, wh- what would you say about strides? Yeah, strides is a must do. Uh, so back to Rick's question on running economy, that's where strides come into play. Strides, drills is another word. I think when we think strength training, we think we're, we're in, the, in the weight room doing cleans and all that stuff. And there is a place for that. But running specific drills and plyometric skips, bounding, all that is a must do. It's a definitely a must do. And maybe not every day, uh, depending on what you're doing, but multiple times a week, minimum. All right, maybe, maybe one or two more. I think we got time for one or two more. You got another one, Coach Sluter? Maybe just this becomes both science and and your feel of being a runner and a coach. Um, let's say that I'm going to do um, just generically labeling it threshold type effort, which would be so I'm I'm going to use Daniels as my reference. So I'm going to be around somewhere like 85, 80 to 85 percent of of max heart rate or something along those lines. Would it? I hear a lot of coaches break that down into say thousands, thousand meter repeats, which okay. was I think a classic of of Daniels. Or am I better now to go maybe three to five miles continuous effort? What if if I'm picking one of the two, which do you see maybe being the bigger bang for the buck? <laughs> well, there there's the I think when you factor in the practical aspect of getting athletes to hit the workout that you want to, I think splitting it into repeats, if it's thousands or if it's miles, if it helps an athlete reset and stay on pace, you're you're more likely to accomplish the goal of the workout. Um, so uh, my view is some athletes need, it needs to be broken. Like we get swimmers that come out for the track program where they're used to training in intervals. So why not incorporate some of that? You get the same, same benefit at the end of the day. It's just more tolerable for them as a coach. You're less frustrated because they (laughs) actually achieved what you wanted. And then you're going to have more pure, longer, longer term runners, guys that can handle three to five mile threshold, stay on pace. Um, so, uh, a little bit of both, I guess, is the answer to answer your question, but, but don't be afraid to break it up into, yeah, into what's, segments. Yeah. What's going to build the confidence of that particular runner. I mean, there are some high schoolers and I would, I would probably argue maybe fewer that can pound out a, a three to five to six. I mean, some programs all the way up to eight mile threshold and hold it, but most, if you can get the same or roughly the same benefit out of, you know, breaking it up and, and the kid comes confident out of that workout, you know, maybe that's the better option. So, so, uh, probably last topic here, coach, before we let go, uh, you know, we thought it'd be beneficial to maybe talk about some of the resources out there, um, for coaches and athletes. And we know, you know, the social media world is a big world that our athletes live in, but maybe also from the literature and the, you know, maybe podcast, maybe book standpoint, uh, who are some guys or girls out there that are really giving us some good information as far as uh, things we can apply to high school distance running? Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, there's obviously a ton of information out there these days. Uh, a couple of names that I always go to, a guy like Dr. Mike Joyner, who is a medical doctor. He's a physiologist. He's a former runner. Uh, he he was um, uh, involved with the, the breaking two uh, uh, project and those types of things. 
he has a good way of just making complex things seem simple. Jack Daniels is a classic. Um, on social media, guys like Steve Magnus, I think, have a lot of good things to offer. Um, I like talking to old coaches. Uh, they may not understand why they were doing what they were doing, but they knew what worked. Um, and uh, and don't be afraid to kind of you know bend their ears as well. So, Coach, where can we find you? Social media or or um, websites, whatever. Where can we find some of your wisdom? Um, well, geez, <laughs> um, I, use, I use the big word there. Jared and I are teachers, so okay. wisdom doesn't flow easy from us. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I I, I am on Twitter. I, I'm not very active. I, I try to promote some of my own work stuff. A lot of my work stuff is not running related. Um, I'm happy to engage with people. I, I think it's very important to to try to provide help, and, and that's help people understand. I don't appear to have any special knowledge or anything. It's just what I do. And if I can help coaches uh, be better at what they do or help athletes, um, I'll do that. As Coach Turner knows, uh, I can be very blunt. Um, I'm not a big fan of all the new gadgets and all that kind of stuff. I think there's there's no substitute for consistent, hard, steady work. Listen to your coach. Your coach has your best interest in mind. And uh, if you don't do the work, then there's no no there's no hacks. There's no special, no magic. There's no nothing. Right? It's just doing it. Yeah, uh, contrary to maybe popular belief, there's not a lot of coaches out there intentionally sabotaging right. young kids' training programs. I promise you. Uh, but I love what you said uh, about old coaches. I mean. You know, just a little background on this podcast this is why Rick and I kind of came to the genesis of this was really the coaching clinic, you know, just being around other people that love this stuff and talk about it. And and you can gain so much from talking to coaches around the state that are dealing with a little bit of different things, a little bit of different scenarios, a little bit of different environments. Uh, I think it's awesome. So, yeah, any any closing thoughts, Coach, Coach Sluter, before we turn them loose? I just like, Matt, what you said just almost there at the end about um you know, the older coaches, they knew whatever was working. I mean, I don't know why, but just that the body, the human body hasn't changed a whole lot. Right. So, I mean, you know, you use some of the older names, shorter and, and Prefontaine and that the, the science inside of us isn't changing. We're just maybe understanding more of it. Um, so I, I love that idea that we're always going to have those fads. Right. I never, I never want to be one of those coaches that read something and said, let's go do it tomorrow for a week. Yeah. So I just love that part. Just staying true to what, has worked and and what kind of has some basis behind it. So thanks for that, uh, Matt. I, I really appreciate that part. Yeah. yeah. So just in closing, hey, thanks uh, to Dr. Matt Harbour from Ball State for joining us today, talking a little uh, physiology for dummies. Uh, thanks everybody out there listening to the Talking Distance podcast. Uh, just wanted to wish everybody luck as we head into this 2023 outdoor season. Uh, because it really is the coaches and the athletes and the supporters of Indiana Districts running that make it great. Uh,